Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is someone who's become a dear friend. And Nikki, I think we kind of like each other. I think this is a real friendship here. We we so like each other, Matt. I I I feel like um, it was Bashir that we met. There you go. And uh, I'm talking about Nikki Russ Fetterman. Nikki is the fourth generation owner of iconic Russ and Daughters. Uh, we're going to get into it all. She was a big part of Advertising Week a couple months ago uh, in the Lower East Side, her home at Essex Crossing, and was part of a great piece of content we did on stage where everyone who attended got a little Russ and Daughters treat, which was an awful lot of fun. And we are thrilled to have you. So welcome, Nikki. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to get to talk to you. So Russ and Daughters is one of the icons, not only of New York culture, of Jewish culture, but of American culture. It's very rare that you have a business that lasts as long as you have um, and that has such an incredible story, not only a story about entrepreneurship, about culture, but also an unexpected, in many ways, very early story about female empowerment, the importance of women in business. So Nikki, I'd love to go back to the beginning and ask you to tell the story of Joel Russ and sort of the origin story of Russ and Daughters, and then we're going to get into a whole lot more. But let's let's go back, Nikki, and start at the beginning. Sure. So the story of my great-grandfather is like so many other immigrant stories. He um, came to New York from a little town in what today uh, is Poland, and um, he spent seven years as a street vendor um, peddling. Uh, his ware was herring. He sold herring on the streets of the Lower East Side to the waves of other poor Jewish uh, Eastern European immigrants. And he first just sold herring out of, straight out of a barrel and wrapped it in a newspaper. Uh, and a family could feed itself for two nights with um, this simple fish. And then he got, a, he got a, a push cart, a horse and wagon. He, opened, he was able to open a brick and mortar store in 1914. Um, and that's when we date the beginning of Russ and Daughters. And with this store, he was able to expand his offerings little by little to include things like locks, but real genuine locks, which is not the smoked salmon we typically think of today. It's here's preserved salt cured salmon. Um, and the family lived in the back of the store. Um, at some point, he needed workers, and um, he didn't have any sons, but he had three daughters. My grandmother and her sisters were enlisted to work starting at the age of 10 and 11. Um, and, but to his credit, in 1935, he actually changed the name of his shop to Russ and Daughters. And we're the first business in this country that has and daughters in its name. And by then, the, his, his daughters were older. Um, they were... Uh, married. Uh, he also made his daughters his partners. So it was highly unusual. And um, they ran our, our original shop on the Lower East Side uh, uh, as the second generation. My father was supposed to be the American success story, um, you know, to become a professional. He was a lawyer, but he felt, uh, you know, called back to this to the shop and he ran it with my mom for 30 years 
as the third generation. And now today I run Russ and Daughters with my cousin Josh as the, as the fourth. Um, so we're in a very small club because less than 1% of um, family businesses in America make it to a fourth generation. Amazing story. So let's let's go back a little bit further and, and dig here on some of the things that you said. So the business begins out of a barrel. And that was sort of step one. And I imagine that's because the barrier to entry was as low as a barrier could be. It, it then advances to a push cart. Can we dig in a little bit deeper on that sort of the very origins? Because it's not only of Jewish culture, but really immigrant culture going back to that time, the Italians, the Irish, quite similar. That's right. I mean, it, it, it was really just the, as you said, the lowest barrier of entry to survival in this new country. And so, you know, it was a kind of a, a mix of, of survival and entrepreneur, entrepreneurship. And people would, you know, figure out what were the goods that were either necessities or that were, you know, some reminder of, the the homes and countries that people left behind and in my great-grandfather's case that was herring herring was um a staple food if you um that reminded you know poor jewish immigrants of you know the little villages and foods that they came from um but it was also cheap so you know one family could live off of a herring for two meals the first meal, you would just take the herring, which was preserved in salt and oil, and you would just rub the fish on a piece of bread, and that would be one meal. And then the next day, you'd eat, you'd actually eat the herring. Um, and the, you know, this is pre-refrigeration, so the barrel was, you know, how you could preserve the food, but then also just, you know, sell directly out of, out of that. And um, so in a way, it's a very typical, his story was a very typical story. Um, and I, I don't think, um, you know, it's kind of ironic that one of the early names of the Russ and Daughters when he had his store was J. Russ National Appetizing. And I love that. I have a picture of the of our street, East Housen Street from 1929. And you could, if you zoom in, you can see the sign. And I love that it was, he called it national because in, it was anything but national. This was really the most hyper-local business you could think of, but perhaps he had national aspirations that maybe he didn't get to see fulfilled in his lifetime, but hopefully if he were to look down now, he would be, he would be smiling. Well, it may have been prescient uh, inadvertently. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I, I think he'd be very pleased to know it uh, uh, lasted I'll, this long. I'll bet he is. So he saves some money and then you advance to a push cart. Yeah. Yeah. And the push carts were, so the Lower East Side was like, we're talking at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, was at one point the most populated place on earth. So, you know, the density of people from all over the world, but primarily at that point, it was a lot of Eastern European Jews um, and Italians um, were uh, just packed into these few blocks of, of lower Manhattan. And 
the push cart was this was basically the first mobile business, right? Like you could, as long as you could stake out one little spot on on the street, you had a, a you had a the means to to be in business, and um, everyone and you would you know people would be lined like the eyeglass vendor would you know his push cart would be next to the guy selling underwear who was next to the you know my great grandfather selling herring um and it was just incredible concentration of you know of handling as you say like in yiddish right people like the, the hustle and the, the, the people trying to get you to, to buy their stuff and people selling you stuff it was quite a scene quite a scene yeah, I have uh, vivid memories from my grandparents who grew up from in Brooklyn, and I remember stories about one of the pushcarts was Pollock, who was the Iceman, and there was someone who would literally, because as as you referred to in the barrel, there was no refrigeration, and back then you would get a block of ice, and that would be how you would keep things cold. Yeah. Interestingly, you know Essex Crossing, which has the Essex Market in it, where you just hosted. Um, Adweek New York, which was amazing. Um, you know, that is that Essex Market was actually founded. It was the first indoor market in New York City. And it was founded in the early 30s because um, Fiorella Lombardia, the mayor at the time, detested the pushcarts, pushcart merchants. And he thought this was such a blight on the city. And so he kicked the pushcart vendors off the street and, and, um, kind of corralled them into the Essex market. So, you know, all it just, and then here, here we are, like, it all, as we New York on the site of the pushcart sellers. It all, it all ties together. All so together. you then, uh, uh, the next level, if you will, of advancement from barrel to pushcart is a retail, a bricks and mortar store. And uh, your great grandfather, Joel, opens the store. The three daughters, I think it was Hattie, Ida, and Anne. Was that yes. Anne was my grandmother. Grandmother and doesn't have any sons, has three daughters, puts them to work. Um, and let's touch a little deeper on something else you referenced, because I think it's really a, a, an incredible story. The first business in America to include female names and the names of, in this case, his daughters in the business. There was no business in America that had that distinction. Is that, do I have the story right there, Nikki? That, that's absolutely right. Um, and it was uh, uh, confirmed, there was a exhibition about my family done at the American Jewish Historical Society um, in 2019. And it, the research confirmed and that this is, this was true. I mean, I, the sad, I mean, unfortunately, if he had had a son, even one son, I'm sure it would have been called Russin Sons. Um, that, well, that was, cult, that was culture at that time. That, yeah. And, um, even I, I remember talking to a customer who was probably in his late nineties when I spoke to him, this is some years ago. And he said, or she, sorry, she was a woman. She said growing up, she just always assumed that there was a Mr. Russ and a Mr. Daughters because it was so unusual. Um, and one one thing that has always stayed with me um, about that this the name is uh, Russ, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a very good customer of ours. Her family also came from the Lower East Side, and she, 
you know, had very strong memories of coming to visit her grandparents um, on the lower side. And she said she uh, that growing up before she knew the word feminist, seeing the name Russ and Daughters taught her that women could matter in enterprise the same way that men do. Mm. And that's you know (laughs) incredible absolutely incredible and we're gonna get it gonna get into some of the other people who are in your sphere of influence which is uh so vast but do you think that your great-grandfather clearly he knew what he was doing that you are here today as you said one percent or less than one percent of businesses survive to a fourth generation do you think he he was he better than other people? Did he have a greater vision? Did he have a greater sense of conviction? What does family lore tell you? I know you're a great student of your family history. There must be something extraordinary about him that sort of got you off to this running start. And now you, uh, under your leadership and that of your cousin, you're not only running, you're sprinting uh, and continuing to evolve the business, but there must've been something very special about him. Well, he it definitely wasn't his charm or personality because he was not, uh, by all accounts, he was not a warm and fuzzy guy and customer service was not in his lexicon. Um, he actually would get annoyed with customers very easily. And he had a habit of telling people, like he would say, lady, do me a favor, forget the address. You know, <laughs> don't come right, back here, forget right. the address. Um but I do a couple things uh, that I can speak to what he set, what he put in motion. Um, one, he uh, he in 1939 he bought the tenement building where the original shop is located, and I don't he didn't do it because he had visions of being a real estate tycoon. He re, he in his bones. He was a shopkeeper. He um, and he did that in order to protect his shop. Um, but that has protected the, our business and my family from, you know, the whims of New York City real estate. So it it gave the shop that that permanence, that that the roots. We it anchored us to the city in a way that we could weather a lot of storms. And then in during the depression. Um, another thing that happened was by then he had he had been successful enough that he was able to move his wife and three daughters. They had they were living behind the shop um, and he was able to buy a house in Brooklyn. And for my great grandmother, uh, this was she was so happy. She was, you know, like a country girl from a shtetl in, you know, Poland. Um, but she and she had a in Brooklyn, she had a garden and this made her so happy. The depression comes around and bankers show up and um, say, look, you know, explain that he was over leveraged and that he either needed to give up the house or give up the, the business. And he chose to give up his house and he moved the family back to the Lower East Side, back to a one bedroom apartment um, because he he hedged his bets on the shop. That the hopefully that the that the shop could get them through those tough times, and he was right, but it did come at a cost. 
um, my great grandmother, I don't think anyone talked to, knew the word depression back then, but she fell into a terrible depression mm -hmm. and she was sort of forever quote unquote sick. Um, but that was like a fall from grace that she never really recovered from. But I think that that sort of allegiance, sort of stubbornness um, and perseverance in, in him making that decision is certainly something that I think I picked, you know, that I have a bit of. Um, and I think every generation of my family has had to sort of exercise, you know, some, uh, make some decision like that or go through some experience like that. Most, you know, for me, it, it's been, co the, you know, it's been COVID. And I really thought a lot about him during that, those dark days of COVID where I thought like, you know, this was what he had to do. This is what he had to give up to get through, you know, and that really fortified me in, in thinking, realizing like I was going to do whatever it took to make sure that Russell and others got to the other side of things. It's a, it's a great, great story. And it's really a, a uniquely American story. And one of the things that gets lost in the political debate here, whether you're on the right side of the aisle or the left side, is that our country was built by immigrants and continues to be built by immigrants. And the sacrifice, not only once they get here, but often the sacrifice just to get here. We all have heard those legendary stories. My grandfather came through Ellis Island. And mm -hmm. we all know the stories of where one family member was able to make it to America, would then try to earn enough money, perhaps out of a barrel, to bring the rest of the family over. But that story of resilience and of sacrifice, uh, not only for the current generation, but for future generations, that's not a Jewish story. That's really an American story. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And that story is, uh, I think it's easy to forget or not want to um, see how that story replays itself every single day. Um, and that's what, I hate to say the phrase because this is what comes to mind, but that's what makes America great. <laughs> yes, no, I think I think in that I think it's that's an actual good use of the phrase and an yeah. accurate use of the phrase. I also I, love I'm clawing back the phrase. <laughs> that's okay. No, we can take it back. I also love uh, your stories about your grandfather, great grandfather's gruffness, and I also remember very early memories of going to a place that did not survive right across from Essex Crossing, which was Ratner's. And one of the experiences of going to Ratner's was that you would get roughed up by the waiter or waitress. Uh, and that was part of the experience. And I think, you know, I, I can see completely how that, uh, how that and why that all makes sense. I, I remember going to Ratner's and, um, and getting, and being really intimidated by the, by the waiters. And it was funny when we, um, when I was, starting out with my cousin to, to open a restaurant, you know, and we were kind of under wraps, but we were telling a few people and they said, well, what's it going to be like? Is it going to be like Ratner's? And I said, well, it's going to be Russ and Daughters and hopefully our waiters will be nice. <laughs> right, right. Oh, they were rough, I remember very rough hiding characters. hiding under the table at Rat Ratner's. You would cower, um, cower in fear. It, yeah. it, it was indeed. So your uh, parents, uh, your dad ends up 
the, the pull is too great. I'm reminded of the uh, pull of Gene Wilder and Young Frankenstein, who tried to get away from his grandfather's legacy and couldn't, of course, in a humorous context, as only Mel Brooks could do. But it sounds like that's what happened to your father, that the pull of Russ and Daughters was too great. Yeah, I mean, I think, so I think for him, he felt, uh, he did feel an attachment. He felt a pull to the shop. He was a, he was a, at that point, a, a disgruntled lawyer. Um, but I, he also, I think, was naive and he thought he could practice law and, and keep the shop alive and, and was quickly disabused of that notion. Um, but I really credit him with his perseverance because he took over the shop in, you know, the 80s, 90s, when, first of all, the food world had not become the sort of glorified uh, world that it is today, where, you know, chefs and food world people are, are you know, celebrated. Um, people looked at my father like, you know, what happened to you? You were a lawyer. What are you doing being a, you know, a, a big on locks guy? Um, and the, and New York is, you know, the New York of the late 70s and 80s. Um, people, customers were were bitter that, you know, Lori's side was, there was a lot of crime and it was very gritty. And, and by then a lot of our customers had set up shop on Long Island and Westchester you know, upper Manhattan, and they would say, like, why are you making us come down to the Lower East Side? You know, move, you should move where your customers are. And my father, rightly so, even though I wish he had translated this into to, to real estate, he understood, he said, you know, at some point, Uptown's going to have to come downtown. And I think he understood, like, the sense of, the importance of place. Um, and the symbiotic relationship that Russell Dutters has with the Lower East Side, and um, they both hold a lot of meaning. So, yeah, so I think in his way, he did feel a pull, but he had to work against a lot of, um, like, societal, I mean, yeah, I think he felt sort of less than, made to feel less than. Um, because he had done that. And the New York that you're talking about, you talked earlier about the depression and surviving that era, but New York has been through an awful lot of ups and downs. And that era that you're talking about in the 70s when Abe Beam was mayor, when there were headlines from President Ford, New York City dropped dead, when the city was on the verge of bankruptcy, those were very dark dark days for New York. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I remember coming to work with my parents and sort of like slinking down in the car, driving up Allen Street and, and turning onto East Houston Street because it was just this endless, the median in, in the street was this row of burning garbage cans and prostitutes and homeless people. And it was just for a young kid, you know, it was just very intense and scary. Um, and this was his, this is my parents' daily reality of being a merchant, you know, on, um, in the, in, on the Lower East Side in those years, um, getting, you know, like our, our, our vehicles kept getting broken into, 
My father was, you know, loved doing bank runs. His friend, Abe, his good friend, Abe Leewall from Second Avenue Delhi was unfortunately um, murdered um, right in front of his shop or his restaurant. Um, yeah, it was, it was really tough. Yeah, um, it- and so I think so much of the success that I've been able to have in my tenure is, is certainly built on everything that the previous generations have, went, have gone through. And that neighborhood on East Houston Street has gone through so many iterations over the years. The demographic mix of who lives there and travels there and opens businesses there has changed. Uh, you really are, and there's a couple of other places, I guess, that are in your neighborhood. Katz's has certainly been there going back to the 1890s, I want to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yona Schimmel, I think, also down the street, has been there quite some yeah. time. But Russ and Daughters really is sort of the Empire State Building, is that shiny, tall, majestic building that has been a constant throughout all that change. And I, I think that you know, as first of all, the United States is such a young country. We don't have a lot of history. And the history we do have, we don't always do the greatest job <laughs> of of really celebrating and preserving it. And a certain and I think in New York is sort of the this is that ethos on steroids where we, you know, think that everything needs to change all the time and you know, we chase after the new, the shiny new thing. Um, uh, And I think that there's a very important place, I would argue, I would say there's an essential place, an essential role for certain, a need, a very human need we have for some things to stay the same. And so for a place like Russ and Daughters to last 109 years, it's, it's more than just a shop. It's more than just a place where you can get really delicious, you know, uh, Jewish appetizing food. It's it's a it's a marker. It's a grounding force that helps us organize our our lives in terms of like, you know, giving us this kind of continuous thread. Oh, Russ and Daughters is still there. You know, you can walk into Rosendars today and be reminded of walking in there 30 years ago. And for so many people, like that is, they're coming for the food, but they're also coming for that ability to, to time travel in their own memories. Um, and we, we don't have a lot of ways to do that. Um, I've had, I've had customers come into the shop. I mean, I can tell you so many stories, but you know, I remember a guy came in and uh, one guy came in once and everyone on the counter, all the counter guys were trying to help this, this fellow. It wasn't that busy. And he just kept like nicely turning them down. Like, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. Do you need help? Do you need help? No, I'm good. I'm good. And after maybe like 15 minutes of this, he said, do you mind if I just stand here you know um i i uh haven't been back to new york in decades my father used to take me here as a kid he just passed away this is the anniversary of his death um can i just stand here for a while 
absolutely. Another guy came in one time and he just <laughs> literally like raced in the store, stood in the middle of the store, took like a big breath in, inhaled, exhaled, and he said, Oh, thank you so much. Russell Butter smells the same. It, you know, smells the same that it the way it did 30 years ago. And then he left. <laughs> that was it. But there, there's there are moments like that all day. Um, but I think you said it so well is that as humans, we need some things to stay the same and to ground us. I remember years ago. I took my daughter to a place that's been pretty much the same since 1854 over on E7th Street, not too far from you, which is McSorley's old ale house. Mm -hmm. And during Prohibition, they made beer illegally in the basement. The front was a, was a drugstore, but it was a fake. It was really still McSorley's old ale house. And that place is the same. And when you're in the back room in particular, and Brendan, who's been the waiter there since I was going there, we all had... Uh, I was the last of the drinking ages, 18, and we all had uh, really awful uh, fake IDs when we were about 14 or 15. So I've been going there, you know, almost 45 years, and uh, it's the same. And I think that feeling that you get when you walk through those doors, I know exactly what you're talking about. It grounds you, and and I think that's so important. But you've also done incredible things to keep all the things that make Russ and Daughters so special going back in time. And you have found a way to bring it forward uh, to today and as important to tomorrow. Talk about that balance that you and Josh have to deal with to ensure that all the things that make it what it always has been stay while you, I hate to use this word, but I can't think of a better one, while you contemporize the business. Mm. Well, I, I, for me, that's what, what, that's the creative juice. That's the interesting challenge. And that informs like every, everything I do, like from, you know, small decisions to big ones is, is dancing this, you know, um, doing this, this walking this very fine line between not wanting to fall back into the past and not also wanting to contemporize so much that it alienates people from this moment of magic that happens when you are in Russ and Daughters, when you're having this food and you are, you are both, you are in the past and you're very much in the present. And um, there's also this constant, um, uh, uh, challenge to try to keep as much the same you know and also while also moving it forward and I think that we tend to it's what it we tend to do one or the other or we do one at the expense of the other I think it's very hard but fascinating to try to do those two things simultaneously you know stay the same and also change um it's uh it's, it's oxymoronic, but that's what I'm trying to do at, at Russ and Daughters. And um, it's, I think, you know, the best compliments I get, you know, when people come to the cafe and, the, you know, I opened this restaurant eight years ago. It's not 108 years old, it's eight years old. And um, people will say like, oh, this feels like it's been here 
the whole time, you know, for a hundred years, it's always been here. And then the next person and the next booth over, be like, oh, this is like so chic and so, you know, so modern. <laughs> and yeah. so that it could speak to people on all those levels is, is really um, fascinating. And I think it's also very organic too. It's not like I set out, like I mapped out, you know, here are all the ways that I'm good. Here's my expansion plan. Here's my 10 year growth plan. Um, it was, it's really just been born out of like, what's the, what's the logical extension of this experience and how do I give it to people in a way that they, they don't feel like they like that it's still Russ and Daughters. Um, so, well, and you've done that with the cafe on, on nearby Orchard Street. And I, I, you said it so well, I think you really have found that sweet spot in between the past and the present and I'll say the future. Uh, and you pay homage to your family. I love all the photographs on the wall of your great grandfather and your grandparents and your parents. And you really feel that sense of history, but it's a beautiful contemporary space. And of course the food is fantastic. Yeah. And, and, um, what I love is that there's this way in which there's a sense of ownership and there's a sense of like a, it's a vehicle for people to connect with who they are and where they come from. And so those photographs that you mentioned, you know, you might've noticed when you're, you know, when you've been to the cafe, there are, there's no wall text next to any of the photographs. So there's, there's no mention of, you know, this is Joel Russ, you know, circa 19, you know, 45. And this is, the, you know, here are the three daughters at the 50th anniversary party, you know. Um, and that was a very intentional move because I want people to look at those photographs and see their grandparents, you know, to think about their family's immigrant story and what they came up from. Um, similarly, like there's no, on the menu, there are no courses. There's no like first sec, you know, appetizer, entree, dessert. It's there. There are noshes. There's you know platters. You can you can come and at one table you'll see someone having uh, uh, some blintzes and a cup of coffee, and then at the table the the booth behind them there's some baller having, you know, a half kilo of caviar and champagne, <laughs> and then there's someone else who is literally shedding tears over a bowl of kasha varnishkas because this reminds them of the kasha they ate as a little kid. And so all these things are happening at once and there's no prescribed way to do it. There's no forced like entry point. And today, I was just here earlier today, and the cafe was packed and I was looking around the room and I was taking in the fact that like, you know, a lot of these people, you know, maybe some people were coming and I, I recognized them and there were a lot of people from all over the world. And, you know, I wonder what their, you know, relationship is to this food. And um, it's kind of just become more than, more than just my family story, more than just this is kind of a type of Jewish food. Um, I think it really speaks to 
what New York is in its greatest form, which is a place that everyone can feel a sense of ownership and possibility and that you can, you know, that there's some, you could have um, momentum and trajectory in your life if you, if you hustle hard enough. Absolutely brilliant. And uh, I love the way you describe it. The cafe is not the only point of expansion. You've also created a bakery in the Navy Yard in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. uh, and you also have a thriving mail order business, which is a nod to the contemporary gold belly economy, if you will. Can we talk about those evolutions? Yeah, so the bakery evolved sort of um, in the same organic way that the restaurant did. Um, but it was this realization that these classic Jewish baked goods, right? Think of bagels, bialis, um, rye bread. You and I have a <laughs> conversations about yes, Jewish we do. rye bread. Yes, we do. Um, as, as they become, especially bagels, just let's stick with bagels for a second. Like as bagels be, have become so mainstream popular, they've also strayed from what what a real New York bagel is and should be. And um, we always have stayed sort of been steadfast and sort of stubborn um, in in fighting against like the oversized bagels that like are as big as your face and you know, the jalapeno bagel and the, you know, cheddar cheese bagel. Um, and because uh, truly like for, for, you know, a bagel in my mind is the vehicle that you want to put your smoked fish on, your cream cheese on. It's not, it's not the thing. Um, but anyway, it be, as my family has worked over the years, they, we used to work with independent bagel makers. And um, the more we grew, the more our, you know, the bigger our volume needs were, the harder it was for them to sort of keep up and to maintain their consistency. And so it became clear that like the only way we could, could, could do it was to bring it all in house and start our own bakery. And um, that's how that happened. And uh, now, you know, at, I was at the bakery earlier today and, you know, one baker is making hamantashen while the other, you know, another, what do we have another team was rolling, you know, forming the bagels for, um, for the next day. And, you know, hollow is coming out of the oven. It's, it's, it's kind of, crazy. I even kind of can't believe it sometimes. <laughs> like I'm a little crazy because I, I'm not a baker. I'm not, you know, before I did this, I was not a baker. Before I opened the cafe, I was not a restaurateur. <laughs> Right, right. There has but to be a few screws loose to do this, but I, I guess after you do something, you know how you've done it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think also for me, one thing that you talked about, like the pull back to the family business, and for me, I I pulled away for a while for a number of years, and I think what helped to sort of shift my perspective and did allow me to feel the pull and let myself not just be pulled back but but by by choice want to come back and and take it over was realizing that as um that I could imbue I could be an entrepreneur with a hundred year old business 
you know, I could approach it like a startup, even though it started up a hundred years ago. And, um, and I think that's what keeps me energized and, and, you know, that it's endlessly fascinating. And also I can, I guess, exercise a little of my craziness and jump into things that I might not. Well, you, you've, you've got that, that spirit of entrepreneurship, uh, just as your great grandfather had that spirit of resilience and determination, you know, that has made its way uh, into you. Let's talk about, you mentioned COVID and that was sort of your great battle and the battle of many small businesses that were forced to shut down uh, for prolonged periods of time. Uh, let's talk about that experience of that decision back, I'm gonna guess it was March, give or take of 2020, when you said we've gotta close the doors, the same thing happened with our business uh, yeah. and uh, without the 100 year history, of course. And, uh, and that movement and sort of some of the light that I'm imagining came from being able to really expand that mail order business. Yeah, March 15th, uh, restaurants and bars, you know, were ordered to be shut down. And I, you know, I'm sitting in the cafe right now. And um, even I, I'm looking at we have, you know, plants that decorate the space. And now when I see these plants, it's like, it's a little like I have like a little bit of PTSD, because when the, the first shutdown was restaurants were ordered to go down to 50%. And I remember we were, you know, sort of just trying to figure out how to how to change a whole restaurant model in a matter of a few hours and we took the plants and we started marking off the, every other table so that's how we closed shut you know uh marked half of the space um and that only lasted two days because then the full shutdown took effect so within a few days you know we i went from running a business where i what I took care of 162 people and their their livelihoods and their families. In a hundred years, my family had never laid off anyone. And you know, over that course of that first month or so, um, we laid. I had to lay off half. Well, we went down to 50 people. So that was pretty terrible. <laughs> to say the least. Um, and I think that was the hardest part for me is, was just not knowing how to best support all these people who depended upon me um, and their jobs. Um, and, and it was just such a profound shift, you know, to, I, up until then ran a business with the mindset that Russ and Daughters should, you know, my moves were made on thinking about Russ and Daughters in the, for the next generation, the next hundred years, um, and having some confidence in its, you know, that it, that it could last. Uh, and then all of a sudden it was literally like every half an hour <laughs> it was like having to deal with some new terrible piece of news. And, um, you know, both, I had two restaurants were shut down the original store, we was so tiny, it's such a tiny tenement space that so we couldn't let anybody in. So we had no customers. Um, that, you know, it got, it. at one point, my cousin Josh and I started to project out how many, how much time we had left if things kept going. 
uh, in that direction. And I think we had six months left, we projected. What really saved Russ and Daughters was, as you mentioned, shipping. Um, and that's something that didn't, luckily, we've, we've been doing nationwide shipping for, I mean, decades. Like back to my, in my grandparents' time, they would write letters back and forth with their customers. <laughs> it would be like two weeks of letter writing before they, you know, my grandparents could put the, the locks and the whitefish in the box and, you know, they had to wait for the check to come in the mail. And anyway, that was shipping back then. Um, but um, shipping be, was, we were able to also not, it supported us, you know, every order was like a godsend, uh, but it also felt like it felt good because we were filling a need where we could get food and this is comfort food for so many people directly to people in their homes that they weren't able to leave. Um, and that also helped me sort of reconcile the, um, the internal debate I was having uh, about, you know, are we, is Russ and Daughters an essential business? You know, should we, should I even be here? Should I be asking people to come to work in the midst of this, you know, uh, pandemic? And I realized one, we checked the boxes in terms of, you know, yes, we make, we're food manufacturers, we make this food, we're able to, to get our food to people. Uh, we were making thousands of deliveries to um, hospitals and senior centers throughout the city. But then also what I felt that in return from our customers answered that question for me because I saw the way that we, Russ and Daughters, fills this essential need uh, beyond the sustenance of the food, the, the, the attachment people have to Russ and Daughters, the way it, you know, it was, it was so important, you know, for people in when they, everything got turned upside down and people were uh, to have their comfort food and to feel like, oh, okay, if Russ and Daughters is gonna make it through, like I'm gonna make it through. Um, I, I, I have a, a friend who works in advertising um, and I remember once he, he explained to me or he, he defined a, a brand or the best brands are the ones that loom large in the minds of, you know, the, of the of the public, of the consumer, and it was in the darkest days of COVID that I really, truly felt the way that Russ and Daughters looms large for people, and that our food like became this stand-in because people couldn't be together, and they were shipping, you know, Russ and Daughters care packages to their loved ones as a way to to say like, I can't be with you, but here's my love in a box. <laughs> yeah. Here's the form of, of some babka and, and smoked fish. Um, and, 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 and so it was the darkest days and it was also really some of the most meaningful days. And this, the sophistication of this whole shipping business has really evolved. This is now a big, big business. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, I mean, during COVID, it, it quadrupled for, for us. Um, and 
now, you know, now things have settled down a little bit, but we certainly are doing more shipping than we did before COVID. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's Thanksgiving, you know, week right now and we're talking and we're shipping every day, like 500, 600 packages all over the country. And this is the week where people are eating, supposed to be eating turkey. But <laughs> I think right, that, right. you know, this is the food that people actually want to eat. <laughs> right. Well, um, it's, it's what ties families together. And, and, you know, as you were telling the story, I remember was going back in my mind to the earlier days of COVID. And we were lucky enough, Rayo's opened up takeout to uh, a limited group of folks. And I was fortunate enough to be one of them in the earliest days. And those few times when we would make the drive from where I live in Port Washington to 114th Street and Pleasant on the Upper East Side to bring home that Italian food from Rayo's, that was really meaningful, much more so than what an individual dinner would mean. It meant a whole lot more because it was comforting and sort of helped you stay attached at a time when it was difficult to stay attached. And that, yeah, and that through that meal, you were, you probably felt that you were doing some small part in helping to, you know, one of your favorite places to stay alive. Absolutely. And I can tell you to be on the receiving end of that, like literally every order, like I, you know, was felt like that. It was this a um, hundred, for me, it was like 109 years of this, relationship across generations that really showed itself and is what carried us through because you know I had so many people saying I'm not going to let Russ and Daughters die so I'm going to order I just ordered 10 packages and I shipped them to everyone I know right right yeah we would do um, the same but you'd order more than you really needed and you, and you tip much more than you normally would because you were so appreciative yeah yeah talk um, about uh, uh the latest venture uh, which was actually announced coincidentally during advertising week, which was a new location that will open in Hudson Yards. Very exciting. It's very exciting. It's, it's uh, construction's underway. It's going to be beautiful. Um, and after a hundred years, we're, you know, staking a claim to the west side of Manhattan on uh, 10th Avenue and 34th. And, um, you know, I, I get approached a lot um, to different, you know, different opportunities. And I, for me saying no is not, um, it's, I say no so that when the right thing comes along, I can say yes. And so this was one of those moments where it didn't feel like we could say no. And um, it's, it's, going to be kind of a, a culmination of the ways in which um, I've grown, you know, of what Russ and Dars has become is going to all come together in this one space because it's going, we're going to have the, we're reproducing as best we can the original appetizing counter from the Lower East Side shop, which is no small feat because they do not make showcases like this anymore. <laughs> um, and people will be able to order at the counter and either take it to go or sit down. And so there'll be beautiful seating, but it won't, it'll be more, uh, it won't be like full service restaurant. It'll be more casual than that. Um, 
we'll have a bagel bakery on site and on view. It'll actually be the first thing you see when you walk into the space. And so we'll be making, you know, bagels will be coming out of the oven all day long. Um, and one thing that kept Rus my restaurant alive, Russell Daughters Cafe, alive during COVID was the delivery business, um, which became quite substantial to the point where I kept the restaurant closed for two and a half years <laughs> um, to really ride out COVID. And, uh, you know, we were able to, to make deliveries throughout Manhattan. Now that the, now that Russell Cafe is open again, I have no way to do that out of the restaurant. And so the West side space, we'll have enough back of house space where we can really reach a wide um, swath of Manhattan and I just think it's going to be such an interesting mix. Like, I know your office is pretty close to Hudson yes, Yard. Is. And yes, it is. That, that like, um, it, I think it's just, a, it's an interesting, for me, symbol of the way in which this city continuously evolves and that their New York is just this ecosystem of all these different universes and so you have these very different neighborhoods and very different types of people rubbing up against each other and so Hudson Yards is just one universe and um I I think I feel like I'm happy that I can bring a hundred years of kind of New York-ness to this very new part of the city story. Well, one of the things that people say about Russ and Daughters is, you know, what's more New York than Russ and Daughters? And the answer is not all that much. Uh, and you also manifest one of New York City's greatest attributes, which is its resilience. And, you know, New York City endures. We went through eight years of an awful mayor in Bill de Blasio and I think Eric Adams is, you know, trying hard to turn things around. Uh, but there is a resilience to New York through COVID, through bad governance, that you know somehow the city will survive. And I think what you do, Nikki, and uh, what Russ and Daughters means to New York, not only speaks to that resilience, but also towards the glass is always half full in New York. And somehow we will come through and survive and indeed thrive. Um, and I love what you're doing down on Orchard Street, what you're building in Hudson Yards. I think it's a great story. Uh, and uh, I love that we were able to make Russ and Daughters part of Advertising Week in the Lower East Side and help tell just some of the stories about what makes the Lower East Side such a special part of New York and of America. Uh, and uh, you are really a jewel. Oh, Matt, thank you. I, I, I'm telling this to the world now, but I um, thank you so much for letting me be a, come into your world and your life. And um, I, it's one of, it's one of the reasons I love what I do that it, it puts me in contact with the breath of humanity. And every so often you meet someone who you, you feel like you've known forever. Um, and so I love being in your in your world. Oh, um, this is, a, this is, it's getting a little gushy here. We better stop it's this. Too much, too yeah, much. Too much, too much. <laughs> but I, I will uh, close too by, um, by uh, offering my services to you 
for the new Hudson Yards location. As I've shared with you, as a young man in Queens where I grew up, I spent 10 years on and off baking bagels. And I'm pretty sure I can still do it. And I would welcome the opportunity to uh, volunteer for a shift or two at your new location. Uh, and I, who, who knows, I, at some point, I may be looking to get into another line of work, so. I, I would love to put you to the test and see if your hands can still uh, move that fast. And, it, it, uh, speed is critical. And handle the, the heat of the oven, you know. The heat of the kettle, I'm very familiar. Yep. Yep. You Listen, know, I, we'll I do remember, and I agree with you on cheddar and jalapeno. I'm against all that stuff. Uh, I do remember when the cinnamon raisin was a new item. Right. And that was, uh, that was very progressive at the time. Right. And, right. and here now it's, you know, it's accepted, right? So yes, change it is. Yes it, is. yes, it does. Um, yes, it does. Well, thank you so much. It was a joy to talk to you. And we will look forward to getting into more trouble with you. Nikki, and uh, absolute joy to have you on Great Minds. Thanks so much, Matt.